This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Associate Professor Andrew Godwin, Principal Fellow at the Melbourne Law School. Andrew joined me to explore the fascinating life and work of William Arquette. Born in 1876, William Arquette was Australia's first barrister of Chinese heritage. He was widely admired and a fierce advocate for Chinese Australians, defending them against racial discrimination. It's particularly wonderful to be joined by Dr Andrew Godwin. He is a lawyer and he's also based at the Melbourne Law School, which is from the University of Melbourne. He's an associate professor there and a principal fellow. And he's actually going to be chatting with me about a topic that is really, really interesting. And I've got to say, I can't wait to hear from him tomorrow with his public lecture on the same subject, which you will also be able to attend if you find yourself interested and want to know more. That's going to be tomorrow at the Melbourne Law School, both in person and online. And I'll give you the details of that at the end of this conversation. But we're going to be discussing the life and story of William Arquette, who was Australia's first barrister of Chinese heritage. He was actually born in regional Victoria in Wangaratta in 1876 and studied law at the University of Melbourne. He has a really wonderful career, which we're going to jump into, but also a really fascinating personal life as well and a life dedicated to combating the discrimination that was absolutely present in formal and informal ways uh, against Chinese people and Chinese Australians and Asian Australians more broadly, of course. And another thing that is so interesting about William Arquette is that he was truly a trailblazer. He was really the only barrister of Chinese heritage for a very long time here in Victoria. So I welcome Dr. Andrew Godwin now, who's joining me. Hi there, Andrew, and thank you so much for coming onto the program. You're welcome, Amy. Thanks so much for having me on the program and also for promoting the lecture that I'll be delivering tomorrow. It's really wonderful to hear that the heritage of both the law school and the Victorian bar is being highlighted, but particularly through the case study of William Arquette, who, when you look at his life story, it really is such a a perfect story to look through the history of both Chinese Australians in the 19th century and early 20th century, but also those in the legal profession. So I'm really interested in exploring his life in more detail. But I did want to first up ask you uh, in particular, and I, I know that you lived in China for 10 years, so you yourself are really familiar with Chinese culture and the Chinese language, but I wondered how you first came to know William Arquette and what drew you to his story. I'd always had an interest in the history of the Chinese in Victoria, Amy, and I always reflected on how significant the Chinese were in Australia. Their forebears came to Australia many, many years before mine did. Every Australian town has an Australian uh, has a Chinese restaurant. You'll find Chinese people uh, memorialised in cemeteries around Australia. A lot of them, of course, came during the mid 19th century as part of the gold rush. Um, so it was really through my interest in the Chinese in Victoria, uh, my long-standing interest in Chinese culture and Chinese language. And um, it was really 
through those um, interests that I came to develop a very strong research focus on William Marquette. But my um, formal research project, if you like, commenced back in 2019 when I travelled to Canberra to a ceremony at the High Court of Australia, which featured the Chief Justice who um, gave the keynote address at the William Arquette Scholarship in 2019. I'd heard a little bit about William Arquette, but I hadn't really appreciated just how significant he was until I attended that award ceremony. And just by uh, coincidence, I sat next to one of the members of today's generation of Arquettes, and that's really how my interest developed. And since 2019, I've been reading up about William Arquette. I've been looking at all the archives. I've been helping um, the executor of his younger daughter to edit a biography that she did of her father that we're hoping to publish uh, in the not-too-distant future. And I've also been looking at um, the impact that William had on the legal profession and the work he did in the courts, the cases in which he appeared. One case in particular is still cited as good law today. Uh, that was a high court case called Potter and Minahan. And so it's been a real delight for me to embark on this journey of discovery, particularly given my interest in, in China, in things Chinese. And um, it's remarkable when you think about William's story because he is a great example of diversity back in the late 19th century, early 20th century, and indeed, as uh, pointed out by Peter Yule, who recently published a uh, history of the Victorian bar, William was the, the first non-European barrister, or the only non-European barrister in the first 120 years of the Victorian bar. So you can start to appreciate just what a trailblazer he was, as you mentioned in your lead-in, and just how important it is for Australians to to become familiar with the contribution of the Chinese, the extent to which they've been part of the very fabric of our society, and how remarkable their contribution has been, particularly in areas relating to diversity. Oh, absolutely. And I myself was really shocked to hear about the fact that the next person of Asian heritage who was admitted to the bar uh, in Victoria came many, many decades later. So William Arquette really was, as you've just mentioned there, and as I said, a trailblazer, with William Lai being the second ethnic Chinese person to join the bar in 1988, 84 years after Arquette did. So, yeah, it is really surprising, but then I guess not so surprising when we think about the bar and also the fact that gender diversity has been such a challenge uh, in the Victorian bar for many years as well. So all kinds of diversities has been something that the bar has struggled with. And it is a very elite group to join, isn't it, in the sense that you're joining a group of highly esteemed lawyers who are very well networked and who really do bank on their own legal reputation in order to get new cases, in order to, to climb the career ladder. So it is a very um, interesting profession to have joined. Indeed. Uh, you mentioned William Lai. Uh, William, together with Cam Trong, another barrister of Chinese uh, background, they were the first two barristers of Chinese origin to be appointed QCs, Queen's Council or Senior Council in the state of Victoria. And so William, himself, William Light himself uh, 
holds that honour of being one of the first two barristers to be appointed Silk or Queen's Counsel. And indeed, uh, one barrister whom William knew quite well, although she was quite a bit younger than William, and I'm talking here about William Marquette, was Joan Rosenose, who was the um, first woman in the state of Victoria to be appointed Silk. And so back in the days when William was admitted to the bar in 1904, it was an exclusively male domain, and it was very much an exclusively European profession in which um, a lot did ride on your connections, your background, the extent to which you could develop relationships with solicitors who instructed you. And it's also, I think, really interesting to note that back in those days, the bar was much smaller than it is today. So when William entered the profession, he may have been, say, one of, um, well, his role number was 88. So he was the 88th barrister to be admitted to the role of the Victorian bar. And uh, this is an interesting point to note of itself. Um, 88, as many people would know, is a very auspicious number from a Chinese cultural perspective. And a friend of mine, Julian McMahon, who's um, a barrister and quite well known to people, given that he was Victorian of the Year and also his role in defending the um, Australians on death row in Indonesia, Julian, it was Julian who pointed out to me that uh, William's bar number was 88, and we thought, well, that's remarkable. How did that come about? I did a bit of research, mainly by looking at the barristers who were enrolled immediately before and after William Arquette, and it appears to me that what happened was the three of the barristers got together and assisted William to get this auspicious number 88 because the one before him was admitted the previous weekday and the one after him was admitted the following weekday. And if you look at all of the dates on which other barristers had signed up to the role, it was they were really separated by periods of weeks or months. And so I think there must have been some coordination to enable William to get that lucky number 88. But uh, yes, you're absolutely right. Um, he was the first uh, non-European and remained so for 120 years until um, William Lyon Cantrong came along. And so it's an interesting point to note, given, given the increasing diversity in the profession today. It was really interesting, I think, to read about or read of one of the quotes in an article that is up on the Melbourne Law School's website by yourself, where you referenced a kind of light-hearted conversation between William Arquette and Joan Rosanove QC, who was uh, the first Jewish woman in Australia to be admitted as a barrister. And you quote this conversation as being between Arquette and Joan. And he said to her, you and I have both chosen the wrong profession, Joan. We will never satisfy our ambitions. Neither of us will ever be made a judge. You because you are a woman. I because I am Chinese. We should have done medicine which is still funny to me to think that yes. that's a joke now, that <laughs> we should have done medicine. <laughs> that's right. No, I think uh, it's, it's fortunate now that uh, things have changed and um, the current Chief Justice of Victoria, uh, Chief Justice Ferguson, is uh, the second woman to hold that position, the first one being Marilyn Warren. We have um, a, a, a female Chief Justice of the High Court of Australia, Chief Justice Kiefer, and so women really do, um, in many respects, outrank men in the legal profession today. In fact, I think the majority of graduates from law school uh, are women. That's a good thing, of course. But 
In addition to the need to redress certain gender imbalances, it's also important, of course, to look at uh, diversity in terms of ethnicity. And a lot of people have been um, making a lot of effort to put us on, on the track of appointing more people of uh, Asian ethnicity and other ethnicities to the bench and um, to expand and build upon the diversity that we're, we're enjoying today. And it is really important to go back to what you said at the beginning of this chat, which is that the Chinese people who came across largely from Canton in southern China in the, well, for example, the gold rush period, but they certainly did come to Australia earlier than the gold rush period even. We're talking about here the mid-19th century in particular when thousands upon thousands of Chinese came across to seek fortune on the gold fields. But they were the second largest ethnic group here in Victoria and, as you said, have made an immense contribution to Australian society for centuries. And it's kind of surprising to me that given that strong contribution and that so many numerous people who did stay, uh, many thousands did go back to China, but also thousands did stay here and uh, many did choose to become naturalised British subjects of the colony of Victoria in the 19th century. And, you know, those people and their descendants are still here today. As you say, you're still working with the descendants of William Arquette. So I'd really love to go back to the start of William Arquette's life and talk a little bit about his father and his mother, particularly because his mother was Chinese. And that was a very, very rare circumstance at the time, because pretty much the majority of people coming across from China were male. And in fact, of the roughly 25,000 Chinese in Victoria in 1857, only three were women. And then in 1861, there were eight Chinese women settled in Victoria. And in 1871, there were still only 31 Chinese women. So William Arquette's mother was a real standout in the sense that it was such a a kind of rare thing for a Chinese woman to come here and um, to settle with a partner, that of her husband, Marquette. Absolutely. William's father, Marquette, had come out here as a young man, I think in his 20s, to serve as a community leader amongst the Chinese workers on the goldfields in northeastern Victoria. And as you mentioned, Amy, a lot of the uh, diggers, those who came out to mine for gold, had the intention of coming out temporarily, generating, earning some money for their families back home. And ultimately, of course, they were hoping to return to China. But of course, many of them ended up staying in Australia and ended up marrying uh, non-Chinese wives And as you noted, there were very few uh, females amongst the community. So it was quite unusual that uh, William's father was able to marry his Chinese wife. William's father had actually come from a region in Guangdong province in southern China called the uh, Taishan. It's a village called Taishan or a region called Taishan. And many of the gold miners had come from southern China um, and they came out here not just to mine for gold, but they also came out here to work in tin mining in places like Tasmania. And in fact, the tin mining, I think, preceded the gold mining that really took off in the middle of the 19th century. So just a bit of information about his parents. Um, And this is an interesting point to note because people often ask me, how did William come by his name, Arquette? And... 
My theory is that his surname came uh, literally from his father's name, which was Marquette. So just to tell you what these words mean in Chinese, Ma is the surname, and the character Ma in Cantonese or Ma in Mandarin means wheat. And Ket in Cantonese or Ji in Mandarin means auspicious. And William's name in Chinese, the Chinese name that his father and mother gave him is Xixiang, which consists of two characters. The first one means tin, and the second one means auspicious, which I think picks up the meaning of his father's given name. And so what I think happened in terms of how William came to have the surname Aket is that I think initially people referred to him as William Marquette, but eventually the M dropped off. And that could have been because people assumed that the R in Arquette was the same as the R or O uh, that appeared in other anglicised Chinese surnames, such as Ohoi, where this R or O is a diminutive, um, a prefix that's used before the surname to indicate familiarity. It's similar, if you like, to calling James Young James or Jim Old Jim, except that it's usually placed before the surname in Chinese. So... Uh, William had a Chinese name, mainly Xixiang, meaning auspicious tin, if you like, and his surname was, in Chinese, was Mai, or Ma in Cantonese pronunciation. Now, as I mentioned, his father had come out here to work as a community leader and had acted as an interpreter for the workers on the goldfields, and in that capacity had assisted the Chinese with their interactions with society, including the legal system, the courts and the law generally. And it's said that William, as he grew older, used to help his father uh, with his work. And so one can understand why old Marquette had had aspirations for William to become a lawyer and a community leader. Now, William's mother has origins that are less clear. Um, we don't know, for example, exactly when she came out to Victoria um, or indeed from which part of China she came. It's expected that she would have come from southern China. But um, she came out when she was very young. I think she had the first of eight children when she was very young. William was the only son of seven daughters, eight children altogether. And so William was very much part of a very female-oriented family. And I think that was important in terms of developing the diversity that William tried to promote throughout his career. But his mother had quite a tragic um, life, at least in her final years, because she suffered from mental challenges, mental health challenges. And some people think that that was simply postnatal depression, but back then that sort of thing was diagnosed as um, a form of madness. And she was sent to the beach birth asylum where she finished her final years and died. And um, somewhat poignantly, William's father died less than a week after his mother had said uh, that he, he died of a broken heart. It must have been quite difficult for William because he was 20 at the time both of his parents died. But um, he did grow up in a family of um, sisters who uh, cared for William, adored William, and I think did their best to support William as he developed his plans to come to Melbourne to study and to develop his legal career. And I've been very privileged, Amy, in uh, meeting and getting to know the descendants of three of William's sisters, Ada, Rose 
and Matilda, uh, alongside the only descendant now who's got the surname Arquette, and that's Boston Arquette, William's great-granddaughter. And uh, William himself married a non-Chinese wife, Gertrude Bullock, who was of Scottish origin. And uh, together they had two sons and two daughters. The elder son, Stanley, did law at Melbourne University, but his career tragically was cut short because he was killed in the Second World War. The younger son, also called William, ended up doing medicine and had two sons himself, one of whom is Blossom's father. And one thing to note, well, I think there are a couple of things to note about his daughters. The elder daughter, Maylan, married Len Williams, and they produced uh, John Williams, the great Australian guitarist. Mm-hmm. And his younger daughter, Toilan, spent many years of her life writing a biography of her father, and that's the biography on which, um, as I mentioned before, the executor of Toilan's estate and I and a couple of others are currently working. So um, that's a bit of background about William and his, his parents. I'm very excited to hear about that biography. It's going to be clearly a really interesting thing to be able to read, given Toilan clearly would have had such a deep knowledge of William Arquette. And I am particularly interested in also looking at Arquette. And I mean, I was surprised to hear or read that he spoke both Cantonese and Mandarin when he was a teenager and assisting his father in court interpreter-type roles, mainly because I know that so many mostly spoke Cantonese. But I wonder, his upbringing, it sounds like he was very much supported to have such a deep and highly educated experience both in the English culture of the time but also the Chinese culture. Yes, his, his parents arranged for a private tutor to teach him or educate him in Chinese and the classics. And one expects that uh, he would have developed his Mandarin knowledge during the course of um, working with his private tutor. But he was quite uh, adept at languages, Amy. He studied French, Greek, Latin, and, of course, English at school. And he was a very well-read and very learned lawyer, who was very happy to quote extracts from Shakespeare, extracts from uh, Robbie Burns, the um, poet, and also Gilbert and Sullivan in his addresses to the court uh, during court proceedings. So he was a very colourful personality in that sense, and he drew on his knowledge of language and literature generally to um, inform his work and also as part of his oratory skills, um, advocacy skills in court. And one thing that I often reflect on is that he was great mates of Robert Menzies, the 12th Prime Minister of Australia, who was younger than he was, but um, worked as a barrister in the same chambers where William had his room. And it's said, and there's evidence to suggest, I think, that um, Menzies modelled his oratory skills after William, um, after observing William in court. Uh, He was a very good cross-examiner and... He was also renowned for being a great settler of cases. He encouraged litigants to settle, and he was very, very skillful at supporting that. And I think that is partly a product of his Chinese culture, the extent to which um, a win-win situation is always better than a win-lose situation. And he developed quite quite a strong reputation for being a great settler of cases. 
Mm, well, it, it does sound like he was very forward thinking in that regard, given where the legal profession has gone in terms of seeking that kind of conciliatory outcome. I did really love the quote from Sir Robert Menzies uh, from his 1970 book, The Measure of the Years, which is quoted. And it is quite revealing, isn't it, when he's talking of William Arquette. He says, William Arquette did not ever sit on the bench, though he would have been a very competent judge. He was a sound lawyer and a good advocate. His keen sense of fun was concealed behind an almost immovable mask. He was considerably senior to me, but we were great friends. It certainly does say a lot about William Marquette that he influenced the longest serving prime minister and, and a very significant figure in the founding of the Liberal Party. Indeed. Uh, and I think in William we find somebody who successfully bridged the gap, if you like, between the East and the West and who spent his life, um, or much of his life, working towards reconciliation, building bridges, and highlighting the extent to which um, the West is really not too different from the East. We might do things differently, but ultimately we share the same aspirations. So, yes, um, William was never appointed to the bench, and when you think about it, back in those days, it would have been quite inconceivable for... A, a person of Asian origin to be appointed to the bench, to be appointed a judge. And even today, of course, I think there are really only a handful of people, if that, who have been appointed to the bench of at least the senior courts in Australia. And so I think what uh, William said to Joan, um, we'll never be appointed judges, we should have done medicine, was a reflection of reality. But, you know, I don't think William ever saw that as an impediment in terms of what he was trying to achieve. I think he was very pragmatic and realistic about what his lot in life would be. I think he had a bit of a fatalistic approach to life. The Chinese have a word, yuan fen, which means really destiny. And there are some things that you have to leave to destiny. And I think William was very happy to do that. According to his uh, family, he never really made an issue of the extent to which he may have been affected himself by racism or discrimination. He, he rose above that and did his best to bring everyone together. Uh, and this can be seen both in the involvement that he had in the Chinese community, but also in the involvement in the mainstream. So, for example, he was a great Freemason and made a lot of uh, non-Asian friends through Freemasonry. But he also was a leader in the Chinese community. He established uh, an association called the Chinese Australian Association with uh, somebody called Ni Hao uh, Moy, who was the son of Louis R. Moy, who has come to be known in many contexts as the father of the Chinese in Victoria. He was a very early immigrant who came out in the 1850s, I think. And uh, Ni Hao was the first Chinese Australian to train as an architect. So William lived alongside a number of other prominent Chinese who uh, were trailblazers. And um, they all worked together to represent the interests of the Chinese and to um, help the Chinese integrate in the broader community. And I think that's one thing that the Chinese have always been very good at doing, integrating with the broader community. And Australia is is all the better for that. I'm really interested to hear about Mihao because um, he's come up in my own research and sounds like a really interesting character. And I know the Armois themselves are a very big family and had many different contributions to Melbourne society. 
I really love your point about Willie Marquette realising, you know, what his destiny would be and what the limitations might be on his career, given the racial discrimination that existed for so many Chinese Australians. And in particular, I was really interested, and I'd love to hear more from you about William Arquette and some of those cases that you, you referenced earlier, because I know that he appeared before the High Court of Australia at least 12 times between 1905 and 1928, and was involved in some of those significant cases where he was um, pushing back against discrimination and uh, the very much discriminatory legislation that existed of the time. So I wonder if you could share some of those stories that you feel highlight his contribution in that area. Sure. Well, I think there are two cases that uh, I might mention that reflect William's involvement in fighting against uh, discriminatory legislation. The first is the one I mentioned before, namely Potter and Minahan. And this involved a, a young man who was, I think, 25 years old when the case came before the courts his surname was Minahan, and he was born of a Chinese father and a European mother. And at the age of five, he returned to China with his family and spent the next 20 years of his life in his father's village in China before his father died. He subsequently returned to Australia, but um, when he came to Australia, he was required to do the notorious dictation test to prove that he understood English. Um, and he unfortunately failed the test because he'd grown up in a Chinese-speaking environment and he was declared an unlawful immigrant. And William Arquette went in to fight for him and what came to be determined by the court was the question of whether if you'd been born in Australia, you were therefore a British subject or a subject of a British dominion that had the right of entry even if you'd left the country at the age of five and returned 20 years later. And so this, the High Court ultimately accepted William's argument that the legislation never intended to discriminate against people who'd been born in Australia in this way. And the High Court made it clear that uh, such rights could only ever be taken away in very clear terms. And so that's one case in which William assisted somebody who may have been thrown out of Australia if uh, William hadn't been around to take on his case. The other case I'd mention is um, quite uh, an interesting one that concerns the interpretation of a provision of the Factories and Shops Act of 1905. And what happened here, under this legislation, all Chinese furniture makers had to affix a label on their furniture to the effect that it was made by Chinese so that people presumably could decide whether or not they wanted to buy it. But um, also the legislation limited the hours within which or during which people in Chinese factories could work. And so it was discriminatory in the sense in that it was directed at the Chinese. And um, in, in this case in which William appeared, the owner of the Chinese laundry had been charged with an offence for permitting a lodger to iron a shirt during the prohibited hours. And uh, to cut a long story short, Arquette, in the Supreme Court of Victoria and ultimately in the High Court of Australia on appeal, successfully argued that the lodger had in fact been ironing his own shirt and that wasn't an offence under the Act as it uh, didn't constitute work that was ordinarily done in the factory within the terms of the legislation. So those are two cases that highlighted 
what you might refer to today as public interest cases in which William had, had acted defending the rights of Chinese Australians against this discriminatory legislation. Yeah, and it is really, really great that he's left behind that legacy, but also that we can even access some of his own writing and his own advocacy. Uh, I know there's a, a paper on the Chinese and Factories Acts that he wrote, which you can access on Trove. And um, and I know that he's also delivered a really interesting lecture on Western and Eastern culture and uh, Confucianism. And uh, he's clearly, as we've been talking about, a really well-rounded and very uh, cultured person and a deep thinker, someone who's been reflecting on you know these questions of life and also clearly of racial discrimination. Just finally, I wanted to to talk about another part of his life, his wife Gertrude and the courtship that they had, because it was at the time quite a difficult thing to be able to have a, a kind of mixed race relationship in, you know, those times in the 20th century. And he, you know, had his heart set, it sounds like, on Gertrude and and did everything he could in in a sense to actually marry her in the end. And I wondered if you could just share with us a bit about that and, and the experiences they had being someone of a Chinese heritage and also a, a European heritage and how they've combined, you know, their families and their cultures. Certainly. Uh, as, as you mentioned, Amy, it was really quite, quite unusual for a person of Asian background to marry a person of European background back then. Um, I think William had fallen in love with Gertrude the moment he set his eyes on her. Um, and that was at a church in a church hall in which it's recorded that he said to the friend he was with at the time, if I'm going to marry, that's the lady I'd like to marry. And what happened following that was that he got talking to her and he invited her out for, you know, a, a walk in the park. And uh, they courted secretly uh, for four years before um, he plucked up the courage to ask her father for consent to marry her. And initially, Gertrude's father was very resistant and didn't want to have his daughter marrying an anti-Oriental, so to speak. But interestingly, uh, Gertrude's family, her mother, her sister, were quite horrified that the father had um, revealed this attitude. And indeed, it was Gertrude's boss or ultimate boss in the insurance company in which she worked as a secretary, a very prominent businessman, who heard about um, William and Gertrude. And in fact, the insurance company had instructed William in some cases. And so they were very familiar with William and admired William. And so this very prominent businessman went along to see Gertrude's father, who was also quite a prominent businessman, and said, look, I think you've got to um, rethink this because William's a very good person and there's no reason why your daughter shouldn't, shouldn't marry and so Gertrude's father eventually relented. He did try to um, impose on them a, an engagement period of a year or two, but William said, with all due respect, uh, sir, I've waited long enough and um, mm -hmm. we'd like to get married right away. And they were very keen to get married because not long after they married, William travelled to China with Gertrude to attend the elections for the Parliament of the New Republic of China. That was in 1912. And so that's when their marriage commenced. And um, it was reported in the press uh, because it was quite a story for somebody like Gertrude to travel to China 
And so there was almost as much interest in what Gertrude had done in China as um, the activities in which William had been involved. So really, as you mentioned at the start, Amy, William and Gertrude were both trailblazers and many, many people since then have been um, blazing their own trail. And we need to be more aware, I think, of the tremendous uh, contribution that Chinese have made to Australia. And we need to celebrate their lives and that I consider myself privileged to be able to do so in relation to William Marquette. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more, Andrew. And I know that we've just scratched the surface of what you're going to cover in your rare book lecture, which is going to be held at the Melbourne Law School, which is on 185 Pelham Street in Carlton. And it is also going to be streamed online. So it means you can go in person or if you're unable to attend in person, um, you can do so virtually. And it's going to be held tomorrow between 6pm and 7pm. And as I said, it's presented by yourself, Dr Andrew Godwin, and it's free to attend. So all you need to do is to register. And uh, yeah, I want to say a big thank you to you, Andrew, for drawing our attention to William's life and his contributions. And I really hope that people can understand this even more and uh, engage with your lecture tomorrow to get the full spectrum of his amazing contributions. Thanks very much, Amy. It's been a great pleasure to share my passion for and enthusiasm in William Marquette with you and your listeners. Uh, and thanks very much for helping us to promote the, the lecture. Oh, it's my pleasure. I've just been chatting with Dr Andrew Godwin and uh, he, as I said, is based at the Melbourne Law School at the University of Melbourne. He's a principal fellow and associate professor and has been researching the life and work of William Arquette since 2019. And as you've been listening and hearing about, William Arquette was Australia's first barrister of Chinese heritage. I'm Amy Mullins and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.